Welcome back, everybody, to Brubble, a podcast gathering young voices and perspectives from in and around the Brussels bubble. And today on our almost monthly panel episode, in Leo of the new year arriving in all its force, and maybe a few weeks late, I mean, we should have maybe done this on January the 1st, we're going to be going over some of the predictions that others made for 2023. And then, you know, adding a, a touch of, you know, flavor, a touch of a... You know, a nice ingredient here or there to see if these predictions actually hold up, what we think of them, and how they'll go. But before we do that, we're going to go around the table and introduce ourselves and, you know, tell people a bit about what we've been doing in our New Year holidays or festivities. Julien, would you like to start? I don't think I've started with you yet. Yeah, sure. Hi, everybody. My name is Julien Ouez. I'm the editor of the French Dispatch, a European political expert, a geopolitical analyst, and a guy from Emmanuel Macron's party, Renaissance, looking forward to uh, talking more about pension reform this uh, lovely, lovely month. And uh, I mean, this Christmas, I've just been relaxing for once, honestly. I just spent a lot of time reading, honestly. Mm. I just spent, I mean, I've already read six or seven books this month. I'm just enjoying the down period really interesting yeah one of my resolutions is maybe to read a bit more because i I've, but then again for me i love reading just in a brussels park in the sunshine yeah it's and nice then, like with the birds chirping around you the little parakeets sprinkled here and there yeah but unfortunately it's like minus one degree that but we'll see how this goes so you'll see me in june sometime anyways my name i'm simon uh, simon van hoover i work for microsoft's european government affairs here in brussels uh i host this podcast as a side project not affiliated with microsoft in any means uh, where i just talk with people about cool political stories happening here and there and join this podcast throughout the new year as we have a stellar lineup planned uh, in the weeks and months to come. Um, Nikos. Uh, my name is Nikos. Uh, I'm from Greece. I work at the European Commission at the Secretariat General uh, in the unit that prepares the briefings uh, for the President and the Vice Presidents. But of course, I'm here on my uh, personal capacity. Um, and on the side, uh, I also like... Uh, to be co-chair of the Economy and Trade Working Group uh, at the biggest student youth organization in Europe, the European Democrat Students. Um, and yeah, I'm excited uh, to be here uh, again today for another episode. Um, I think, Simon, basically what you told us is that you don't like reading books, because I would like to say that since the beginning of the year, there have only been 28 hours of sunshine in Brussels. <laughs> I saw that today. Uh, but uh, I would say that uh, my break uh, went uh, pretty pretty nice, even though the work didn't stop, not even on Christmas. Uh, but uh, I, I managed to go to Washington, D.C. I really enjoyed it. And I would say my resolution for this year is to go for the first time in my life camping. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. small. Fair enough, fair enough. When you said the, the, <coughs> the cast sound, I was getting optimistic about going to Canada. Uh, <laughs> uh, you could go camping Canada. It's a I could go to Canada as well. Knock off two birds with that one stone. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Zhao, sitting at the far end of the table again in your customary gloomy corner. Yes, my Is everything guy. good with this gloomy Portuguese man on our side? No, I don't think so, man. I don't think so. <laughs> and first of all, I wish you all a super 2023 to you and to the attendants. Uh, my name is João Ponte, I'm Portuguese, and my field of expertise are geopolitics and international trade. I dealt with the recovery and resiliency facility and with the European semester, semester at the European Commission, and also took part on the Portuguese presidency of the Council of the EU in 2021. Uh, my holidays were very busy. I spent a lot of time in not-so-sunny Portugal this time. <laughs> it was raining all the time, so unfortunately I didn't do that, that much outdoor activities. But I took the time to do some reading. 
uh, I sense a common theme here. Uh, reading will be going for, I suppose. Yes, prepare for this podcast. I think <laughs> mindfulness <laughs> is the word we're looking for. Well, I say getting in touch with your emotions, which is a topic I'll be covering in my podcast in a few weeks' time. Uh, mm-hmm. Stay tuned for that one. Um, anyways, I think we've had a... It's been about a month, a month and a half since we did our last episode where we ranked the top political stories of 2022. So it only seems natural follow-up of our top predictions of 2023. And I kind of wanted to start from the top again because uh, our top story for 2022 was Ukraine, which I think aged pretty well. <laughs> I mean... There's no way it wouldn't have. I'm hoping everything will go well in that situation. For 2023, the way we're going to roll out this podcast is we're going to read a prediction somebody else made, uh, a notable think tanker, a notable politician, a notable uh, head of state, something like that, and then we're going to analyze it a little, see uh, what we think about it. So going back to Ukraine, that terrible transition, I'm going to start off by quoting somebody from, uh, from SIPA, the think tank here in, in Brussels, uh, Edward Lucas, who wrote on New Year's Day, 2023 could go far better for Ukraine than many expect, uh, pointing to the fact that in 2022 we learned the Kremlin is weaker than we ever thought, and that Ukraine is far stronger than most outsiders, even Ukrainians themselves, believed. Do we share his tone of optimism? And by that, I am very much lingering on the thought that as we're going into New Year, I think we should be very cognizant that European support has been strong, but many have been wondering if it's strong enough. Have enough have, has enough been done, especially as we're on the day that the tanks got finally announced, or the day after the tanks finally got announced being sent over there. So who wants to start off this important topic? Julian, I see you nodding beside me. I know a lot when you talk, but uh, for me, it's it's an interesting question because nobody can take this for granted. And speaking to a lot of Ukrainians and working with a lot of Ukrainians in general, particularly those connected to what's happening in Ukraine right now, there is a question about whether anybody's doing enough. And we are doing a lot, but we have to remember that the Ukrainian military is fighting an uphill battle purely because of the sheer numbers of Russian troops attacking them and participating in the invasion. There's some good news, which is that the mobilization of prisoners is no longer working the way it was supposed to be because the Wagner Corps cannot actually recruit as they were. Mm-hmm. And also the fact that they're currently speaking about another mobilization wave in, Ukra- in Russia sorry, tells us that things are not going well. And we keep hearing stories about mutinies in various groups in Ukraine right now. However, a lot of it depends on the strength of spirit of the Ukrainian people, as well as whether or not we can keep providing weapons, particularly tanks now. Because if we're honest, the number of tanks we're sending aren't actually enough. And on top of this, they're likely to only be ready sometime in March, April, May, which is an issue. And on top of that, even, we've been making a really big deal about the German tanks being sent over. Mm. But Germany is taking what some say an outsized amount of the blame. When we look at the French, where are their Leclerc tanks? Have they been sent yet? Questions like that still linger with the cooperation from all European allies. For sure. And there is a sense that because they are the most influential states in the EU, the French and German forces have been taken a lot of the blame. In some ways, rightly so, but in many ways, not necessarily. Though I will say that the SPD was 
acting in an incredibly poor way, and I don't buy a lot of the claims that it was a genius tactical move to force Americans to send tanks as well. <laughs> and I think it was more an opportunistic way of attempting to avoid the conversation for political gain internally while the polls went in the right direction. Mm. I feel like, Julian, you're saying a lot, but you're not really providing a temperature of the water of how you think it'll turn out. And, I mean, should it turn to warmer corners? Uh, Zhao, um, Nikos, any thoughts on how do you think the, the situation in Ukraine will evolve? Uh, do, are, do you share any optimism that we can pull together? Um, I'm, uh, I'm hearing a lot, of, uh, a lot of what the Kremlin is saying. And in my head, in a way, I'm going to say in quotations, adjusting for inflation. So, for instance, Medvedev, who is turning out uh, to be quite, uh, quite an influential player, I would say, in the Kremlin, in, uh, in the backstage of this war, a very strong and ardent supporter of, uh, of Putin and the, Kremlin, and the Kremlin status quo right now in, in Russia. I will say one thing about him specifically, that we underestimated him when he was prime minister slash president, basically Putin's uh, number two. Uh, I think we saw him too much, I would say, as a, as a puppet and too little as an own singular actor that, uh, that works um, to progress those objectives of certain, uh, certain powers that influence the Kremlin right now. But he said that uh, they've set their, their, their red lines and that uh, should um, something along the lines of should Russia lose the war, um, they will not be afraid to use all weapons mm-hmm. in their disposal, of course, making a sort of allusion to the nuclear capabilities and nuclear arsenal of, uh, of the Russian Federation. Now, all these things, to me, what they scream is desperation. So, we sit here in Brussels, we need to think certain things. Number one, Ukrainians, all Ukrainians, are doing what they need to do. That begs the question, are we doing all that we can and should do to make sure that the men and women in Ukraine, the civilians, the leadership, military and civilian leadership, and just the the average citizens, the average consumers, the average mother, father, grandmother, son, daughter, and so on and so forth, have what they need to continue being resistance, have all the weapons they need, because this war has changed uh, very radically over almost 11 months, because the needs of Ukraine changed as the phases of the war progressed. Um, I think this... Uh, all this, I would say, red tape that we have at at a binational level saying like, oh no, I will not send tanks, I will not be rather the first to send tanks, or they should first send tanks, or um, I, I think this is, this is all a, a little preposterous, because while we're discussing all these red lines, there are people dying, mm-hmm. fighting for their freedom, as well as democracy and freedom in Europe. And in a way, against what I see as this, in a way, totalitarian ideology um, and force that wants to just say that I want to get this land out of power and I will get it. So we need to stop this and we need to provide everything that um, Ukraine needs militarily. Um, of course, with, with some uh, uh, restrictions which understandably will not escalate the conflict further, but at the same time, now the issue is tanks. Before, it was other things. After, it will be other things. We need to make sure that, um, that we, we are properly 
on the right side of history because you can't be on the right side of history with one foot. And I, I am sure of, of the good intentions of a lot of European leaders and I understand that they don't want to, uh, to antagonize, to, to create uh, internal U European and Western issues, but at the same time, um, they need to think the magnitude of the situation and the, the fact that history right now rests on the shoulders of a lot of these men and women making these decisions and they need to make sure that those are the right ones. The Kremlin is weaker than we thought, much weaker. Prigozhin will be a much more powerful ally in 2023 for, um, for Russia and for, for Putin specifically. And he is becoming essentially an invaluable and inseparable piece to the puzzle of Putin's Kremlin. And Ukraine is far stronger than everyone expected. And that starts with the, the morale of its citizens. Fair enough. That's a good rallying cry here. Yes, it is. Uh, we'll try not to screw up after this brilliant <laughs> intervention of Nikos. Uh, I have a little bit of... Uh, my opinion is a little bit um, darker than this. Um, I mean, I stand by the fact that the Ukrainians are doing very well. Pretty much more than what we or most people would have thought in the beginning. Uh, although I think that what people want to know is if we predict that if the war is going to end this year or if it's here to stay and in which format. So, and this uh, leads me to some, to expose some, some things like, for instance, the use of the tanks. Are the Ukrainians actually planning on mounting a huge counteroffensive that they actually need the tanks to succeed? Because are they going to defeat Russia with that? Should we focus on giving another type of uh, support, namely, for instance, drones? Uh, other type of weapons or even uh, air defense missiles because having tanks without guaranteeing for instance air superiority against yeah. a powerful foe I don't know what is going to be the actual use for it this is the first thing the second thing that is worrying me about is uh, this joint exercises again between uh, Russia and uh, Belarusia uh, there's still always lingering in the air the possibility of uh, an intervention by Belarusia, although maybe we, maybe we should disregard it, maybe not. But uh, there is always that thing, and we already approached in one of the, on the, of the previous uh, podcasts that we discussed. Uh, so we don't know if in 2022 they can actually they can have uh, an upgrade on their degree of involvement into the war. And the third thing that is being overlooked, but I think it should something that we should point it out, is the tensions looming in the Western Balkans again. And why am I portraying the Western Balkans again? The conflict between Serbia and Kosovo. Serbia is a historical, very important ally to Russia. Mm -hmm. And a conflict on that area, again, will divert attentions, both from the US and the European Union, to their immediate neighborhood. Although they already have troops there, but this can actually divert attentions and also in order to deal with the crisis, they can actually be in the need to divert also funding. And uh, for the fourth uh, thing that I would like to point out, for us to find a solution nowadays, since there is almost a stalemate in terms of the situation, the most important thing that we should look for is a face saving for everyone. Mm, that's controversial. That, that is how you actually. No, I'm not. I'm not saying. When I'm saying, like, if you want to reach an agreement, 
in this case, for instance, Ukraine or uh, Zelensky will not admit, and I totally understand, concessions. On the other hand, we, do not, we need to understand what is acceptable for Putin and Kremlin for, for them to say, okay, we should stop this. This is the face saving that I'm talking about. Maybe they should understand that they should withdraw the red lines. Yeah. But one of the things that we need for any type of resolution to this conflict to begin with is we need credible security guarantees for Ukraine from the West. That has to be in place before any resolution's conflict will, will, will come to be. And personally, looking at the state of the EU right now, looking at America's flip-flop approach, oh, we're sending a lot of money, but we're very on the fence here and there, I don't think they'll get security guarantees in the current political environment. I don't know if that's something that we're willing or able to get. Who, who Ukraine won't get? Yeah. But the, the thing is, Russia wants to pretend it's the guarantor of, um, uh, of peace in the eastern neighborhood, but Russia's guarantees, security guarantees more, than anything are not worth the paper on which they signed them on. But are our security guarantees worth more? I mean, Europe, Europe was not the yeah. one that uh, that guaranteed that they would not invade uh, invade uh, Ukraine in exchange for all, all the Soviet nuclear arsenal uh, in Ukrainian territory. True. So I mean, uh, what Europe is uh, is willing, from my perspective, to guarantee is peace and prosperity um, for but a how? strong and free. Uh, Ukraine. Uh, 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 unfortunately, or fortunately, maybe for, for some others, um, y- Europe does not have uh, uh, an army, but we do have very strong uh, uh, nations that together can come together and discuss how we can, we can support. There is no nuclear umbrella that can, uh, that can provide security guarantees for, for Ukraine. Uh, but at the same time, I think the, the direction that the West has taken um, in the war so far is, um, is is strong. It can be stronger, but we, we should not underestimate it because at the same time, do we want to start a, a third world war? It's, it's true, but uh, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm more pessimistic that anything will happen, given your attitude, but Julian, you're, you're mumbling and grumbling. Apologies. More, more scowling than anything, but there's a couple of things that I disagree with there because Europe, by proxy, did have security guarantees for Ukraine through the support for the United Kingdom's guarantees and the US's guarantees when Ukraine was gave up its nuclear positions, same guarantees that Russia gave, our guarantees aren't worth as much, uh, they're worth as much as what Russia's are, to be honest. But there was one or two things that I want to, I mean, maybe it's because I'm slightly, I'm not working for an EU institution right now, so I can be a bit more critical. But what we're doing right now, our guarantees aren't worth anything. Like the guarantees of EU member states towards other EU member states aren't concrete, which is why most member states are part of NATO. And this is why, paradoxically, why lots of member states don't necessarily trust in the idea of an EU army, which is one of the things that we as a party and we as a country have been pushing quite hard. But I just wanted to react very quickly to the point that uh, Nikos made on the uh, shifting alliances within the Kremlin. I can never pronounce the guy's name, but Pirzgoin or Pirgozhin. whatever. Pirgozhin. He He was actually sidelined two weeks ago. And we've seen that there are signs of the Kremlin moving back towards a traditional focus on the actual Russian military with the shuffling of generals and the appointments of a new man to lead the Ukrainian invasion. And I think 
that's either going to lead to another stalemate like we saw in the East, or it's going to end up causing a problem where the war effort just stutters and the beginning of tanks, which will start snowballing eventually, will start pushing the Russians out of certain points. But the key part that I think will show us if there's a victory of Ukraine on the horizon is if Russia manages to lose Crimea, for whatever reason, or, and or, sorry, if Russia loses uh, Mariupol. Because at that point, the Russian efforts and the Russian defensive lines will be broken and also supply lines, which will have a huge effect. Fair enough. So I think this is a pretty contentious issue going forward. Um, For me, just to wrap it up, the way I see that what we should be doing as the EU, as Europe, should be offering a more step-by-step process for Ukraine integration into the EU. Whereas if we start on a customized, I suppose, step-by-step process where we start negotiations as soon as possible, we can already offer Ukraine access to EU funding, access to EU processes well during the negotiation negotiating processes and Ukraine being the economy that is being the being the the farm powered industrial power that is should be in should be in such a position where we as the EU should be able to go up and say we can offer you a special customized journey to EU membership where we can offer you more than before and I think that would be a very credible show of force on our end that we are supporting Ukraine to an extent that we haven't been seeing before, beyond just awards, beyond our defense spending, or sorry, beyond our investments in Ukraine, which are almost less than America as a whole block, which is embarrassing. But regardless, I think at least the tides of war are not as gloomy as they were in February 2022, and we've seen Russia falter, which is great news. Hmm. But yeah, I think that's a pretty somber note to leave it on. And any, any optimistic parts about the... Ukraine scenario, if I can say it that way. We should not forget that there still is a war on European soil. I I see a lot of people getting fatigued, uh, and I always tell them, at least uh, there are no missiles raining down on our heads. Don't don't forget how great we have it. And I just want to say, Russia won't lose the territories Ukraine will win them, and that's a difference. Fair enough, Nikos. So moving onwards then, tied into the Ukraine uh, situation a bit, because we talked a lot about support for Ukraine, uh, support that's happening across the Atlantic Ocean, and that leads to the the point of transatlantic ties between Europe and uh, the uh, the USA, which is a contentious issue, especially we saw in December with the IRA, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, passing in America and causing a whole hubris of attention being thrown onto it from here, which we've seen, you know, uh, develop in interesting manners over the past few weeks. Sources like Richard Haas of the CFR uh, and other mainly American sources that I see predict that transatlantic ties could also suffer from these emerging differences, both over to extend the military, economic, and diplomatic support for Ukraine, levels of defense spending, as well as the economic uh, indicators going around, like the IRE, IRA, sorry. What do we think of his statement? As all of us are Europeans, I know I have a Canadian accent, but I have a Dutch passport. Are we as uh, are we as optimist or as pessimistic as Richard Haas? Do we think that the transatlantic relationship, the special connection our two continents have, will come out stronger in 2023? Zhao, would you like to start? Well, I'm going to start. Come up, come as up the discoverer of America. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> as a discoverer of America, Terra Nova. Has they got actually this? Uh, no, this Canada. 
not uh, United States. But uh, um, concerning this, our transatlantic relationships, um, I don't see, I, I think that in, in 2023 they are going to get uh, gloomer. Hmm. I don't think uh, that they are going to improve, and especially uh, because of the geopolitical competition that we that has entered into force, uh, namely because of the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, so at first at uh, first glance, when it was first announced, the European Union actually praised the the plan because the plan, the main objective was actually to um, give or, or, or try to transform, put the US into the path of transition uh, to a green economy. Mm-hmm. But when they actually look at the plan, they say, oops, this looks like uh, protectionism, blunt protectionism. But on that hand, my argument has always been, has the EU not been engaging in protectionism in these sectors for years? And when America tries to, you know, turn its head a little bit, you know, protect its own interests slightly, that's when we realize how fickle our efforts have been. It's all collapsing in on us. One thing is, you cannot advocate for free commerce on one stand and try to to portray yourself as a multilateral speaker or a multilateral agent and try to promote some type of agreements and then inside try to move towards this type of approach. I mean, it's not that I don't understand. I understand that the United States do this. The issue is, is how things are presented. And of course, I mean, this, is, this sounds very grim for us, for the European Union, in a sense that we are losing geopolitical leverage again, and we are losing in two fronts, because first, energy prices are cheaper in the United States mm-hmm. than here, which means that they already have ad, um, comparative advantages in production. So in first glance, European uh, decision makers are fearing that mo- some of the companies actually move towards the US yeah. in search of a better uh, way to actually produce. And of course, with the Inflation Reduction Act, with this insect- incentive plans for getting greener and uh, tax breaks and subsidies and stuff for, for a green agenda, it actually is making it worse because companies realize that if they stay here in Europe, they will not be able to compete in the same uh, level playing field as the, the um, with the with the companies in the in the US. Therefore, it's another incentive for companies here based here in the U- in Europe to move to make the jump towards the, the other side of the Atlantic. And this is a very grim situation that uh, uh, decision makers in the European Union are actually trying to counteract. And how they are trying to counteract that's the the most important thing. So uh, first attitude that you took is like uh, what they usually do when uh, a crisis comes up, which is uh, create a task force. So <laughs> to assess, uh, to address the sort of joint. I do love how this happened too. Immediately when the crisis happened, we sent over a minister and we're like, please set up a task force. Yeah, <laughs> that's, a, that's a very much European <laughs> thing. Uh, so they just said this time it's a, a joint EU-US uh, task force in order to address our uh, the EU's concerns, so in order for us to complain to the US uh, on the measures that they are putting forward. And also the European Commission, uh, of course, they try to to find a way forward for this situation. And um, and they are trying to promote like a, a fund, a new fund. So basically asking for collecting more debt 
yeah. creating a fund implies creating more debt in order to finance uh, our industry, in order to make it a level playing field with the US. This was promptly rejected by France and, uh, and, uh, and Germany. Uh, and of course, the, in this sense, they are, they are right, because there are funds and schemes that are not being used or not being used at its full capacity that the funding can be allocated mm -hmm. to actually help the industry. So, and that, uh, and the other thing that they want to do is make the state aid more flexible. So the way that the state actually, the member states actually promote um, aid to the companies via um, um, tax credits or subsidies to make it easier at the European level. And of course, this was just uh, the, f the first thing that popped out, but then France actually took the, the lead on and uh, promoted like the Made in Europe, which is like a counteract to the IRA. And this actually has four main pillars, which is set production targets for, in, uh, for the period of 2030. Yeah. Uh, so in order for us to reduce our own dependencies. Um, also again, uh, soften the st state aid uh, rules in order uh, this for uh, providing tax credits and subsidies to green uh, technology uh, and also to raw materials, this is very important. And uh, establishing a sovereignty fund, in this case is to reallocate funding that is not already being disbursed and also use 221 billion of loans that is not yet used. So this actually great amount of money that can still be used in, in favor of the European industry. And last but not the least, this is very important, France calls for trade defense. So uh, it's European Union who actually has the prerogative for uh, the, commercial, the commercial policy. So, that, um, so in this sense, France is actually asking for the Commission to use all the defensive instruments that they have in and to promote it, especially in regards to the WTO, so the World Trade Organization. What yeah. they are actually asking for is protectionism. So with this set of efforts, can we not say that transatlantic relations are reset to be stable? And Julian, as a, I'm sure you've had a bit more focus on this, of Macron's uh, little voyage to America in, in uh, December to sort this matter out. Is it not been sorted? Um, so there's two currents when it comes to thinking about transatlantic relations in 2023, and one's the short term, one's the long term. So, I mean, short term, while everybody's trying to figure out what's going to happen with this Bi-European Act and how Europe's going to respond to the IRA. And on top of that, when we're combining to support Ukraine and also while we're s just about every member state in Europe is trying to increase their funding, I mean, in particular in France, I think we're putting forward 450 billion-ish just to modernize our army, which takes us into the top half of military expenditure in Europe. It's going to strengthen in that aspect. But like Joao said, we need to respond to the IRA. And the reality is that's going to cause a lot of friction. And no one can really say how that's going to play out. But we are a geopolitical competitor with the US, and we always have been. No matter what the domain is, no matter what's been going on, we've always been the, U the US's competitor. I mean, particularly France. We've been doing this for like 100 years now-ish. I think that's a bold statement, just for the record. I, but, but go on. Go back, go back to the Charles de Gaulle presidency. You'll see real transatlantic competition. Just going to let that leap, but go on. But uh, <laughs> what's... I think you're missing China, but... Uh, 
Go on. No, but I'm not saying we're the main US thing, <laughs> but we are one of the competitors, you know, or at least we wanted to think we were. But the reality is that we don't know how damaging any of these are going to be because the Bi European Act hasn't been announced properly yet, and we don't know what's actually going to come out of True. the initial efforts. And also, we don't know whether, for example, on our list, we've got something on Taiwan. We don't know what's going to happen in Taiwan to push us there. We yeah. don't know about our efforts to combat Chinese and Russian influence in Africa and the Middle East and how we may combine or work with or compete with the US in these aspects. We don't know if there's going to be an entirely new, for example, the CHIPS Act. It could lead to better cooperation with the US. And exactly. we simply, we don't know what's going to happen. What we do know, however, is 2024, when we've got elections all over the place, including in the US, that's when we could have a lot of problems if we have Santos, for example, who becomes president and takes a very protectionist position compared to Biden. Yeah, but and, and I will say even like more on the regulatory front, like a lot of a lot has been said about the regulatory coherence between European frameworks and American frameworks, and at least under Biden, we're seeing good progression in the right direction. So, for instance, data flows seems to be, you know, moving positively. By the summer, we should have a very somewhat optimistic solution to this, and maybe this is the year to get these regulatory approaches in, to, to get this progress made before the uncertainty of 2024. And yeah, that might course. be on the top of the mind of European decision makers going beyond the IRA. But I know, because you haven't spoken yet. Is there anything you want to mention? Or you, uh, yeah, you I was actually um, waiting for the French person to stop, uh, <laughs> to make a point, rather. French? <laughs> Nico, you should, uh, sorry, <laughs> Jao, you shouldn't be talking. <laughs> yeah, where's he coming from? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, you know, I uh, I agree with uh, Jao's part of Jao's point. Uh, he did say that when it came out, we all applauded the um, uh, the the IRA, uh, and then we were like, "Oh, wait a minute!" When we looked at the fine print, we're like, "This is quite protectionist." As a matter of fact, uh, I'll have you know. Um, you know what? Uh, it is. On the other hand. Uh, I, I would not go as far as to call America a competitor. It is a little bit uh, a protectionist measure, and I'm not denying this. However, um, if we look at, for instance, the TTC, the Trade and Technology Council that was yeah, set up, super important. This, this forum was, and still is, incredibly relevant mm -hmm. for us to have a place where we can get at both a political, but more especially at a technical level, and discuss... Uh, the European Union administration together with the US federal administration and say like, look, we have a problem with this, we don't agree with this, how can we find the common ground? This is not what competitors do. Competitors compete, they don't... Uh, oh, but you can be allies and competitors. Yeah, uh, that's not really how you presented it though. No, but that's, that's <laughs> but a simple uh, fact. We are allies, but we compete in the yes. markets and geopolitically. Yes, I will say the timing of this is a little bit in America's favor, and I'm pretty sure this came into uh, into play, um, because um, the the war in Ukraine has has put America at a bit. It has demonstrated rather the difference between Europe and America on a lot of fronts: diplomatically, militarily, um, economically, in some aspects more than others. But um, it has demonstrated that we need to wake up. That all of us need to wake up. We don't really live in a world where we're all buddies and everyone wants to trade with the European Union and this and that. But America also needs to realize that if you keep turning your back on a lot of issues on your closest ally, you'll one day wake up 
and realize that you've lost your closest ally. Because uh, tell that to a Canadian. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, look, if we look at, for instance, a lot of countries in Africa, they were not content with the support that they were receiving, I'll say, from the West, but uh, predominantly it comes down to the hard, um, hard uh, those security guarantees that we talked about before, military and so on and so forth, and security. And they said, well, you know what? I'll just turn to the Wagner Group because they will turn a blind eye if I massacre uh, a few people, if I commit... Uh, a little bit of, of genocide, whereas um, for us, at least, it's it's certainly not the same. It will not fly under the radar. And I understand all the historic uh, criticism that may arise from this point, but uh, we don't live 500 years ago. We live in 2023. And while I understand and recognize and do not take anything away from the hi- history of uh of the entire world, and that includes Europe and colonialism. At the same time, we are in 2023. 20, um, so I think we should cooperate. Uh, both sides need, b- before we, we try to, uh, not try, but before we uh, we hash this out, Europe needs to, to demonstrate that it can and we will stand on our own. The initiatives that uh, um, President von der Leyen announced, the Green Industrial, uh, Green Industrial Act it was, what was the name? I'm blanking on this one. I think so. Okay. Yeah. Yes. The, because I think it was G dip something. Okay. And uh, anyway, um, the sovereignty fund, which uh, was also announced, but at a later date, there are a lot of instruments. At the same time, um, leaders of Europe need to understand that certain problems, a lot of the problems we we uh, we face today, require um, European solutions whether we like it or not. Because I'm also tired of uh, listening people criticize the European Union and they're like, and this and that. I'm like, a lot of these people are people that you're voting for that are going and wreaking havoc um, when it's time to negotiate something as important, for instance, like the the digital global cooperate tax. And I'm again, I'm not naming any countries. Anyone that wants to know which these are can go and look it for themselves. But the reason this has not been adapted is because certain... Uh, characters uh, within Europe are not content with um, uh, with it. At the same time, I also look at France and Germany, and um, they're against collectivizing and mutualizing further debt, but they're not against making more lax state aid rules, which, of course, are going to benefit a country like Germany and France more than they're going to benefit a country like Malta or Cyprus or Estonia or Latvia that does not have the industrial base, that does not have the funding. So, and I think um, state aid is something that's flying under the radar a little bit because of of COVID and the fact that we still have very lax state aid rules. But really, um, really a lot of people have come out and said and told Europeans to just tread lightly on that because this can really, really undo the, the internal market because you can't have some states incapable of funding their industries and some others just uh, plunging money into theirs where you create, again, some countries up here and other countries down here. And as a Greek who who has experienced austerity, and it's not pretty, I do not want to to further go down the, the line and see Greece just reneging right when uh, uh, when we're beginning to get a... Uh, uh, to get back up uh, on our feet. So, just to, to say, I think transatlantic ties could suffer, mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. and very important what you said, uh, Julian, for the U.S. elections. Mm. But you know what? They don't have to suffer. And that's up to both sides to go around the table and make sure that does not happen. Yeah, because I think this issue really exposed a lot of the internal, mm. you know, struggles within the European Union. It, it's really like a litmus test. The, one, the litmus test that the Ukraine war was, but the one that this is, I think, really a real-life trade scenario where there's no good or bad side. There's no easy solution out. With the, the Russian war aggression in Ukraine, it's just you fund more, you send more money, you support in any way you can. Whereas no. here, it's how do we entice these 20-something, diff- 27 different competing interests. But and it's also a question of, and I think this is something that people have forgotten, especially recently with the war in Ukraine, uh, international relations and diplomacy and geopolitics isn't necessarily about good and bad or good and evil or wrong, right mm. and wrong. A lot of it is grey and it's mostly about what is considered in the best interest of certain actors at a certain time. Yeah. And people often forget that this is the case in politics, even at the local level, but this is something that is particularly forgotten when it comes to something like transatlantic ties, because can you really say anything is bad or good when it comes to this? Should we perhaps move yes, on? In the interest of final time. Point? No, no, no. Okay. In the interest of time, I was going to say we need to do yeah. the next point. No, I was going to have a quick transition question, you know. Ask the table, pull a really good prediction of for 2023, and which is, will Ursula von der Leyen's pony-killing wolf escape justice in 2023? Yes or no, going around the table. Ursula von der Leyen has a wolf? No, but her pony got killed by a wolf, and she's launched a manhunt for it in Germany. This is why she's not defense minister anymore. She would use all you the weapons. You haven't heard this story. No. Jesus. I, I have. But maybe let's not get into okay. that. Okay. I'm, I'm going <laughs> to let that. We know that. Actually, when no. it stops recording. Yeah. We'll talk about it afterwards. Um, I left this question on because I, I think it's, it really exposes well, I suppose, the other conflicts we're ignoring around the world, the other like uh, major nations making strides. But... As Richard Haas again said, uh, sorry I mentioned his name twice, but uh, the sleeper story of the year will be Japan's emergence as a major geopolitical actor. I might disagree with that. And in that sense, I want to ask, who will be the sleeper geopolitical agent of 2023? Will it be Iran? Will it be India? Will it be Japan? Or will it be, which my guess will be, Turkey? You know what? I uh, why I will uh, disagree why did with your point. point to you? <laughs> I don't said, know. Said, I, I, I am sure it was. Did you see as a uh, lean in? Uh, as yes. soon as Are you Turkish now? That's because you. you grow, but we'll, 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 we'll give you a few seconds here. There's a lot off. of punches below the belt. Uh, <laughs> but, but Turkey you know is a local geopolitical uh, power. Exactly. That's what I was. Uh, yeah. Was, <laughs> it's not a local one. I would say it's a regional. Yeah. No. For sure. Yeah. Global. Uh, geopolitical power as much as I, I, I don't like to uh, the, 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 say this. <laughs> the question was sleeper geopolitical agent, though. And Iran I, is I, I not think a sleeper geopolitical Iran is not a sleeper, agent. yeah. I will tell I you still think it's being overlooked. I, I, think I could agree with that. Yeah, and that's what I'm saying. Uh-huh. Let's let Nikos actually make his point because you've got yes, to like Go on, Nikos. You know what? I'm not going to speak a lot uh, on Japan because I don't know the issue mm-hmm. as well as I would have liked. But in my opinion, in the region, the sleeper, real sleeper ge- geopolitical actor is South Korea. And the one yeah. that has mm. the bigger potential to be an even bigger geopolitical actor and the very sleeper one because it's small is Taiwan. Yes, we'll talk about Taiwan in a second. Um, but I think those are good points as well, and I'm surprised you didn't linger on Turkey. Are there any other sleeper <laughs> political geo, uh, uh, sleeper geopolitical agents we want to discuss around the table before we move on to the next Poland. prediction? 
Oh, that's it. We'll discuss that one in a second if we have time for it. Yes, but I would actually argue that Japan's always been a sort of a sleeper uh, geopolitical power anyway, yeah. because the fact that if you actually look at the statistics of the Japanese economy and the military and everything, it's so powerful. The only reason why Japan is not more, and I, I surprisingly know a lot about Japan because the culture is fascinating to me. But the reason why they don't have that is because the article in their constitution that bans them from having an active military. They have a military in all but name as it is, and it's an incredibly powerful one. But And if it's done in, used in concert with the US and European actors and local allies, it can, not necessarily unsurprisingly to the international community, stand and fight a good fight against even China. Mm -hmm. The question more is, when it got to the point where it needed to awaken, how quickly could the process go? Because Shinzo Abe, before when he was prime minister, he made a lot of efforts to try to reactivate the Japanese yeah. military, and a lot of people were more concerned about triggering a conflict with China than doing anything bad. And I think once that goes, things will progress quite quickly, I think. Yeah. Actually, I was and actually, that's, that's, on, that's the, the point here. This is historical. Yeah, Again, this is historical. Um, the the documents that were put forward on December 2022, so the National Defense Strategy and mm. the Defel Defense Build Build Up Program, um, historical not only because it will augment significantly the investment on military for Japan, yeah, but also it marks a trend within the Japanese people because for the for first time since long time they are actually strongly behind supporting these measures. Yeah. So they actually perceive themselves, and the documents actually stated, they perceive themselves what happened in the uh, w in Europe with Russia. They can very much see them see it happening, China invading uh, Taiwan. So they are actually starting to fear people in Japan. The Japanese are starting to fear for some type of conflict to be looming in the horizon, and also they starting to fear their relationships towards Russia, because Russia has deemed Japan as an unfriendly country. Mm. So they are actually portraying themselves, um, trying to portray themselves as, again, uh, regaining some of, the, some of the hard power that they used to have, but still, they are going to um, increase their, uh, modernize their defense forces because they still they, they don't have an arm they don't have like an offensive army but they have the defensive forces mm. which yeah. per se is still an army and it's very capable on its own yeah. and also they are going to do this with uh, two main things or, two, or three main things that we can point it out first they are going to increase the military spending up to two percent so going one in one percent above the the one percent cap that they already have. Second, they are, and this is actually very important, they are planning on acquiring long-range cruise missiles that are actually capable of hitting China and North Korea. Mm -hmm. So this goes way beyond what is defensive. Yeah. Um, and also, they are trying to do this on a diplomatic uh, level too, because they are trying to foster the relationship, bilateral relationships with the UK, also with the US, and establish strategic partnerships with Italy, France, and surprise, surprise, with Canada. There we go. And, uh, the, what was it, the, the awful acronym, the AUKUS Agreement? Uh, oh, no, don't talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, uh, I think this leads well into what the other prediction is that was quite juicy that I had picked up on. Um, 
which is from Ian Bremmer and his Eurasia group, who publishes a list of 10 biggest predictions of 2023. I would recommend you check it out. It's a pretty nice list. But they also include their five red herrings. And one of those is this statement, Taiwan isn't set to become a t- crisis in 2023. They figure that China will remain focused on their internal crises first, suffer through COVID, and then as a Russia situa- or as a Russian war in, in, of aggression in Ukraine unfolds, then they're going to calculate their odds, which will be most likely 2024 or later. Mm-hmm. What do we think of uh, our man Bremer? What do you think of? What do I think about Ian as a person? Well, nice well, guy. I want to tag him wrong. in the tweet, you know, grab some publicity, but uh, <laughs> go for it. Um, I'm going to be very precise in this because I, in the interest of time, because it's a topic that we already yeah. kind of covered, uh, it depends. Because it depends on what the global situation is, purely because if all of the Western allies end up expanding the equipment supporting Ukraine and China feels they can get away with it, China could be very liable to say, okay, hey-ho, let's go and just invade Taiwan. Let's be honest. There's nothing really holding China back in terms of COVID because the Chinese government doesn't care anymore. They've let it rip now and they've said, you wanted freedom, you get freedom, this is why you should have listened to us. And so they're going to let this happen and they may get in some vaccines to alleviate the concerns. But I think if they feel they can get away with it, they will invade Taiwan and they will not care. And they can do it quite quickly. However, there's something that's quite interesting as well is that we've seen some analysis in strategic simulations that show that more often than not, if the US can avoid being locked out of the Taiwanese Straits, Taiwan can beat back China just on the punitive punitive and painful results which is the main yeah. thing you know because yeah, it's also a very like i don't want to delve too much in the strategic aspect but it's a very it's not as easy to go across that straight i think it can only be yeah. done in certain weather conditions in certain yeah. limited time scale which is probably spring 2023 if it were to happen and i think at the earliest yeah well even at the i don't i think the waters aren't correct in the summer or past that to okay. even launch it easier and i think COVID is still a focus, and as much as you say they don't care about COVID, they care about the economy. And I think COVID impacts the economy, yes. and in Taiwan will also impact your ability to re-enter the global stage after this wave of COVID. But any other thoughts on this side of the table as we move through our predictions lists? Um, I, in my opinion, so China has a different um, way of acting than uh, us Westerners. So they, they are learning. Or just they could say we're learning, but God. They could say, but what I mean is, they this situation with so we usually um, establish this parallel between what is happening uh, in Ukraine and what could happen in Taiwan. So basically, this is a test on how to react. And my and uh, on another on another hand is like um, China has a different time pace than we do. Mm-hmm. Usually, they they work out differently and they work out silently. Uh, so that doesn't mean that by the fact that they are not doing anything or that we perceive it not doing anything, that doesn't mean that something's not happening. And here I bring again the case of the militarizing of the, uh, militarization of the islands. They continue milita- militarizing the islands in the South China Sea. So they continue expanding their mm-hmm. influence there. They are continuing on their approach, their ring approach, so the three ring approach, which the first one covers uh, actually Taiwan. So I think that they are going to keep on with this type of strategic approach up until a point that they reach at least a parity to compete with the US regional wise. Mm -hmm. And then we can start to see some problems unfold. 
Okay, interesting. Let's move on from the international stage. We're going to go a bit more domestic. But before we do, another quick question to ask around the table, you know, pull our own 2023 attitudes. If you could attend, let's say you're head of state for your country, if you could attend just one geopolitical gathering of the year, which one would you go to? And it could be you know, G20, Davos, which I already wrapped up, the Munich Security Conference, COP28, maybe the European political community. Um, MSC. I would love to go to the Munich Security Conference. That's going to be very interesting this year. It's going to be very interesting yeah. this year. Yeah, especially, you know, auspices of the, the second year of the war and everything. Yeah. yeah. And I also the European military industry being built up this year. Mm. Fair enough. Yeah. Any thoughts on this side? G7. G7. Or is it not G6 now? Huh? Without Russia. <laughs> or am I missing no, my no, numbers? No, it was G8. 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 Ah, my bad. No, no, no. <laughs> I thought we lost became, uh, No, G7. I think G7 is, uh, is uh, rising more and more in uh, mm. international importance because in a way it represents the, 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 the unified, uh, unified face of, let's say, what people would call Western interests. And I think it's rising more and more in relevance in uh, importance and decisions are really made important global decisions are made uh, and decided in that very small forum so Zhao EPC it's held in Moldova this no, year no no not EPC no, no, no. <laughs> I actually go for the Munich um, yeah. conference yeah for me I think it's the most important one although I would like to stress out is it good that um, world affairs are actually dealt by just seven States. They're not world affairs. Hey, Canada's in it, so come on. Can't, can't <laughs> complain. Can't <laughs> complain. <laughs> Anyways, moving to more regional stuff going on. I, I see you're shuddering here in your seat. Um, there's a bunch of elections going on this year, and a bunch of think tanks and, uh, you know, learned people have been putting up predictions going forward. I know there's a big election happening in Spain at the end of the year, which can be really interesting with the presidency coming up as well. But we're not going to focus on that one. We're going to focus on the one which has some maybe predictions for the right-wing, you know, strength in Europe, the, the Polish election, uh, and uh, from the ECFR, who published their own list of predictions, uh, so the European Council on Foreign Relations, they published their own list of predictions for the EU for 2023, and Mark Leonard and Jeremy Shapiro argue that the Polish Law and Justice Party loses the parliamentary election, and the new government will settle Polish disputes with the European Union and Germany. All right. Um, <laughs> can we do two minutes per, per yeah. response? Let's go for it. T- time. time is ticking, I will say. Apologies. Yes. Um, I, I think that, uh, that peace, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, has a real chance of, um, of losing uh, the election. Uh, however, the biggest impediment is the unity of, uh, of the opposition and whether they're able to rally around a single candidate. And that it remains also a big impediment to whether... Uh, Erdogan will lose elections. They, they they are doing very well when it comes to geopolitics, and that's why I said that Poland is uh, a very sleeper geopolitical it's power true. that is developing an incredibly strong and rightly so military that uh, protects the, the eastern border of uh, the European Union, honestly, like no other. Uh, whether they win the elections, I think, will be uh, a toss-up. I think it's too close to call, and I don't want to... Um, to make a call because uh, I think predictions are are just a wrong way to look at politics. 
Uh, you say this after 45 minutes in this podcast. Yeah, like, well, go on. But, uh, <laughs> the second one. The second yeah, one. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that in a second. We'll give you the two minutes. So All right. Oh, sir, I was ready for two minutes uh, for both. Let's go for it. Let's just do it. Two minutes for both. Just to introduce the second one that we are talking about is that Peter Zalowski from The Economist predicts that Erdogan will lose the 2023 election. With all the tension and stuff going on, yeah, so how can he on. lose the election when he's literally willing to throw anybody in jail to, uh, th- that's willing to run <laughs> exactly. against him? Like, come on, this is not a democracy uh, anymore. But you could <sighs> argue his recent actions on the world stage have been showing that he's a bit more. He has something to prove, at least somewhere. Yeah, because he's rallying up his ultra nationalistic base because he went. But, but to why? Bed w- with why does he need to? Why does he need to? Because he, he realizes that uh, his ass is on the line. Ended but you just said that he couldn't lose. I didn't say he couldn't lose. I uh, he, He's dug a pretty good position for himself mm. in a good and a bad way. Uh, but I, I, I'm, I'm really afraid uh, that uh, if, if he sees that the elections are slipping from his head, uh, which right now odds are not looking good, but the elections are still manageable, I would say, for him. But if he sees it, um, not looking good for him. He's gonna. He's gonna it's look to, to to rattle. Oh, done, been there, done that. <laughs> <laughs> he's gonna look to rattle yeah. some things. Um, it's probably gonna be Syria. He's gonna piss off the Americans yeah. there. Might be Cyprus, and I fear it might be the Eastern Aegean in uh, in Greece. But let's see. Let's give her the next two minutes. Uh, Jao or Julian? Who wants to go first? Okay. Yeah, okay. two minutes for both. For both, uh, yes. I, I know uh, Nico's proposing took five, but uh, go on. Okay, uh, Nico, Nico's, <laughs> Nico's already touched most of the points that I would touch. Uh, so, yeah, in the, in a way, uh, po- Polish. So for Polish elections, it can actually go both ways, and uh, I totally agree with the assessment of uh, Nico's in terms of geopolitical um, importance. And I would add also its importance to the internal market too, because they are very, very much anchored there. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, they are very, very important strategically for the U.S. They are one of the U.S.'s favorite allies strategically in Europe. Uh, so for Erdogan, it, yes, it can also actually have a chance for losing. Just uh, we need to understand if the Social Democrats in the, in the, um, in Turkey actually have what it takes, because um, Erdogan is facing like a huge amount of, of issues. Like inflation is run is ramping. Like if here inflation is bad, there it's one hundred percent. Inflation. Yeah. So uh, imagine. And I saw this great quote from this Dutch guy complaining about <laughs> Turkey, where he was like, "My used Lego has more value than the lira." Yeah, but <laughs> but, but, but the thing but the thing is, it is not being like this for now because mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. of the, the the current situation. It's been this since tw- uh, since 2017 when they had the riff with the, with Donald Trump, and actually their their currency plummeted. Uh, and also because of, uh, and nowadays he, with these authoritarian drives, maybe it can actually push for the opposition to actually be able to win the election. Because my argument is, I mean, sure, the opposition might not be strong, but for me, a dictator is only as good as long as he keeps his people somewhat satisfied. And for me, inflation is a thing that cuts the deepest at people. And I think that's what's going to cause mm. these tensions, and that's why we've seen posturing elsewhere, because yes. he has no idea how to address an inflation crisis. I mean, nobody yes. does. No, no we I don't actually, he's been addressing, but poorly. Yeah. Actually, oh, people, people, say, people say yes. Yes, people <laughs> say that the actually the inflation, uh, most of it is actually due to his own politics. Mm. But uh, I mean that's up for debate. And um, so I would just like very quickly to stress Finish out up, other yeah. t- other type of uh, of elections that we should be paying attention to. First, Pakistan, very important traditional uh, U.S. ally in that region, uh, and can actually 
and can actually uh, can that was out ousted by uh, from this of the, the previous prime, prime minister was ousted from office with the censure uh, vote and they he was blaming the US for doing that and now he's running again and he can actually win the election so that's the prediction and since the US have actually lo lose lost influence in Afghanistan we would see how we how they would square with the fact that they were going to lose another potential ally in the region uh, and then I would just like to stress out uh, Spanish and Finnish elections. It can in some way uh, help to understand if Europe is actually turning uh, right, mm -hmm. uh, because there is a possibility for the right-wing coalition to actually win in, uh, in Finland in and also in, uh, in Spain, but Spain it's, it's, uh, it's more dubious, it's a little bit more difficult. And also last last point is to stress out the importance of the elections in Nigeria. So it's a country mm. that is plagued by ethnical conflicts, and uh, they are they are on the way again. And also, it is very important for us to actually look on this on this country because it has one of the biggest reserves of oil and gas. Yeah, fair enough. Julian, your moment to shine. Do your political analysis. I'm gonna take it as far as I can. <laughs> so I agree with Jean on all those elections, especially Nigeria, and I'm glad someone else is paying attention to that election because no one seems to care, which I find baffling. But Apologies. I think, uh, how dare you? <laughs> but I'll invite the Nigerian embassy on, how about that? That would be a fun podcast. But uh, all of the European elections right now are important because they're gonna give us a snapshot into what we can expect next year. Point. In PIS's position, I think it's exactly the same because this is going to give us an idea of how strong the far right is going to be in the EP yeah. next year. The Turkish elections, I'm with Nikos on this because of the fact that Erdogan can do what he wants and he's going to get away with it if he tries hard enough. And he can also win purely based on the fact that he's already arrested the opposition leader and he's now trying to figure out if he can get excluded, gets him excluded from the election from having been arrested on this point. He excluded him. Did he actually exclude them? Yeah, Was the decision made? Tavuzoglu uh, is uh, uh, is trying to find a way to, to oh, okay. appeal it, but he cannot run. I think oh, so. I thought that the decision had been made. Yeah. Okay. Damn. So okay. Then already there's that. So now the question for Erdogan is: Have his policies been bad enough for Turkish people that he loses this election? And uh, I'm gonna say uh, polls are BS. Don't believe them. But uh, it also depends on. Can he look like the best of the rest? So if all the opposition candidates don't have a good credible plan or good credible background, Erdogan can win by default mm -hmm. before he even resorts to the whole dictatorship and yeah. authoritarian action. But yeah, I mean, the elections this year are going to be fun. But I'm not going to say that anybody should be saying who's going to win, who's going to lose, because we can't. We know usually the day of when the exit polls come out what we can expect. And even then, sometimes they're wrong. Okay. Well, we have a few more minutes left, not much, because we have a time limit today. So uh, let's transition to our last topic we want to talk about. But beforehand, we'll do another quick round of, you know, fun questions to give us go. Well, less fun, but uh, what do you think the biggest tech story of 2023 will be? And I'll give you three options, unless you want more. Um, so AI will be the, the, the booming headline of the year. Um, Twitter will actually shut down, which uh, didn't actually happen last year. It's sad to see. Or... Uh, the TikTok will be banned in the U.S. and they'll try to pressure the EU to do the same, which I think is actually a good shout for something to go for. But anyways, around the table, any <coughs> any words? There was a study that was released yesterday that um, uh, that the chatbot AI that was released very recently Chat by Elon, yeah, ChatGPT mm. uh, that was released very recently passed all the exams for the Wharton School of Business. 
to get an MBA. Uh, I think we're really underestimating how this is going to change our lives and how the fact that this thing exists right now and, and it could be commercialized can make redundant a lot, a lot of jobs that exist right now in the world, first and foremost in Brussels, might I, might I add. So I think um, understanding its commercial power that I, I think the public is seeing right now for the first time yeah. uh, and people that haven't worked with AI, which are a lot of people as much as the tech geeks may may not understand uh, and I think regulating it uh, will be a big major step yeah and there's major pressure to get the AI act done and wrapped up in the next few months which yes. yeah. we'll see of that but anyway, I can't comment as somebody working for Microsoft um, Zhao or Julian <laughs> no, I, I totally agree with Nick because I think that's the yeah. the thing that is going to be headlighting, headlighting yeah. the year um, so the AI and actually how, it, how good it's going to be our European response to it the, fair enough uh, yeah. The AI act, so let's see how it plays. Any, any no, I'm the same. I think the AI is going to be the big story this year. And having also played around with it a lot, experimenting to see what it's capable of, it's beyond our wildest imagination. Just this year alone, like if you look at the development of chat uh, GBT and even things like Cactus AI, the things it can do is astounding. It is absolutely mind-boggling. And this is still in a prototype stage as well. Like, we're yeah. not even seeing the full capabilities of this thing. It's incredible. They probably can't. They probably can't, the yeah. The, the, the full capabilities exist. We just, they shouldn't right now be put out. Anywhere near us. You for, know. for a whole number of reasons. Can you imagine with the arguments we have on this podcast, what me and Nikos would do to each other with AI? Hey. It would be <laughs> horrific. AI, Nikos, and AI, uh, I, I was thinking of trying to find this chat GPT thing and, tr and get it to write my script for this podcast, you know, gather all the headlines for me, but, uh, ah. Anyway, last one, you know, and the biggest one, as some people would say, the biggest prediction for 2023 comes from our friend over on those French coasts, uh, Macron, who says in his New Year's address, uh, which he does on December 31st, I don't know if that's a French thing or anything, that's not New Year's, it's old year, as the Dutch would say. No, um, no, no. And anyways, uh, he says 2023 will be the year of pension reform. Um, and I want to know our thoughts about it, because that's gone over swimmingly well in the past month or so. But I do think there's a big case to be made for this, because even, I think, a few days ago, uh, Prime Minister Rutte of the Netherlands was also saying, in response to the IRA stuff, well... Maybe we shouldn't be going on the massive EU-wide, you know, f funding stuff again. We should instead be looking internally to cut down maybe on our pension spendings, uh, being a very frugal of him. So there's an argument to be made that mm. we are spending as Europe, not even France in particular, too much on these social programs, and that's what's causing us to be uncompetitive in the worldwide scene. But uh, regardless, maybe I'm drawing the picture a bit too wide. Julian, do you want to be first or last? <laughs> you guys go first, because I'm interested to hear what your points of view are, because I know what I'm going to say, but... Uh, Mr. Pontus, go ahead. No, 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 please. No, I'll give you the floor. All right, man. Um, you know what? The, the older I get, the, and the more I work, the more I realize how important... Uh, <laughs> Sounds like a 40-year-old man. Labor, the labor laws uh, are. I'm not really hardcore uh, in, uh, in, in, this, um, in this view, but, I'm, mm. but undoubtedly they're extremely important. Now, uh, we cannot go on like, like this with the current labor market, the way that how young people can go to the to the pension, it's a difficult truth, and I understand it. And you know what? I look at myself and I'm like, I will probably not go in pension until I'm 70 if I ever go. I I reiterate the fact that I'm Greek, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's difficult. 
and uh, sometimes very painful. Um, I'm not saying I agree with, uh, with or disagree with the pension reforms of Macron. That's an internal thing for France, and uh, Julian can tell us more on that. But I, I will say that the model that we have now in, in Europe, in a number of countries, and uh, in a pan-European level, is just not sustainable. Because as a young person, I cannot be working all my life to sustain pensions of other people, when in reality, I will probably not see a pension myself unless mm. I, I make my private savings or I establish and secure my future on a personal level. So that's the painful truth from a young person's perspective. And people can go and, uh, and protest as much as they want. They have every right to do. But the hard truth sometimes hurts because it's the truth. Mm. It's interesting we put because you'd think that more right-wing parties would be trying to hard. grab that rhetoric which mm. you don't see the planning on. But anyways, come on, Joe. So, okay, um, no, th this, this is an interesting discussion what has been happening in, in France because um, we can discuss the morality of it and also we can discuss the structural effects that it has. For instance, it has been for years because it's not only been Macron, a lot of, of other French uh, presidents tried to actually uh, reform the pensions uh, system in, in France. Because it says that he has like, correct me if I'm wrong, Julian. I think he have like 48 different type of uh, of uh, rules or, or, or subsystems. There, or are, like this. there uh, are a lot. So it looks like li really cumbrous, and some people actually say that it is Byzantine. So oh, I for sure. Know if it is a Greek yeah. reference or something, but uh, <laughs> the Byzantine uh, super complex. Yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, I, so I think I think they na they nailed with the description. So that that's how things go. Um, so it is important on that sense to actually make it uniform. And the other thing is. Um, we need to understand nowadays what we want from our generational pact. Because having reforms, having pensions is actually what it is about. We tend to believe that we discount now for one day to have, but it's not true. Mm. We discount now for some people who is retired now to have the right to have the pension. So we discount to our parents, to our grandparents. This is our generational pact. But the issue is, is the current system actually going to allow us to when we reach the retirement age to actually have a pension? Maybe not, because the system was built under industrial uh, perspective. So when we have like a secondary type of, of economy that, that produces perhaps more, generated more money and more revenue that actually allowed us to have later on capability to pay for a social, social yeah. welfare state, which nowadays is not the case. So uh, we need to really strike a balance on, on this situation. And uh, also, I would um, reiterate what Macron has said last, uh, last year uh, in his uh, August 2022 speech, the end of abundance. Mm. So, and this end of abundance is not only about uh, social welfare, it's also about our way of life. So the system will change. If it has, if it, it is a need for it to change, I will leave to, to the discussion or to the, the assessment of every person. Uh, but the system is changing. Right, Julian, arm the minigun and start shooting. Yes. <laughs> okay, so two points. Yes, the president always says a speech to the French people on the evening of the 31st of December every single year. Just one point. And second point, just to remind everybody, I am a member of Macron's party. I am a member of Renaissance. And I personally do agree with the reforms as they are. Objective analysis. Yes. Uh, just, uh, just, just be clear, because I, I don't agree with everything about it, but 
let's let's be honest. So taking back from what uh, my lovely colleagues have said, it is true that we're, a lot of us aren't sure. Uh, I mean, I'm 30 years old and really, I almost forgot my age for a second though. And I'm 30 years old and I'm still not sure if I will actually be able to retire. So, I mean, I'm in a position where I'm currently, you know, having to invest so that I have some kind of pension because there's one thing that a lot of people don't mm, realize is that we have a shared pension system-ish in Europe where if you rack up points in another country, you can take them back to an extent to another country and all this kind of thing or have them paid into a foreign bank account. But for people like us who move around a lot, we don't actually meet up certain requirements for pensions, like certain amounts of working time in a country. Like in France, it's a hundred and something semesters or whatever. And this is something where in many ways I do sympathize with a lot of people because a lot of us aren't sure if we'll be able to retire. We won't sure what our pension is going to look like because the system as it is now feels unbalanced. And a lot of the times, especially in countries like France, when we try to reform, we see a lot of protests that actually prevent things from being, let's say, fairer in some ways and maybe more balanced. And a few years ago, we, uh, Emmanuel Macron and the government then tried to push forward an even more fair and a less biased pension reform system that was based on Thomas Piketty's analysis and planning. But the problem was that politically it was absolutely annihilated because the left and the far right just decided that they weren't interested in it. And even though it took key tenets from Thomas Piketty's own work, Thomas Piketty went live on television in France and said it was an abomination that needed to be killed. Like that's the system we're dealing with in France where it's so politicized and polarized. Getting these things through is almost impossible. But the reason why I support the reform and think it's going to go through is that inherently it does good things. We're looking at a minimum pension of 1,200 euros for everybody. I mean, everybody that retires gets a minimum of 1,200 euros, which at a certain point in life is good. It's 85% of the minimum wage. If I'm not Something like that, yeah. And on top of that, we're not making a huge increase in the pension age now. We're looking at adding two years. And at 64 years old, it's still going to be the lowest in Europe, if yeah, I'm not wrong. Th there, is one, there is one thing there. It's you need yeah the, you need to to have forty three years of working yes exactly which is where the whole problem of traveling around a lot happens yeah. there are things that one point I've not looked into is the question of penibility so people who have extremely hard work and difficult lives I think they can retire earlier in this system still and some of the special regimes will still exist to an extent for periods of times for certain people but ultimately it's this is the question we all need to ask ourselves is what do we want our reforms, to, our pensions to look like in our retirement? Because many of us won't retire until in our 70s. And that's a problem for some people. And I would even say, maybe good old von der Leyen should be looking at pushing for some unified European pension rules. Mm -hmm. uh, we should, uh, the European level on pension reform. Speaking about Byzantium. Both. Yeah. <laughs> but I think we should let the podcast linger on that perhaps yes. sour note. Thank you a lot, Julian. No. I would be positive. To all our listeners, start saving money. Yeah, that's a good way. That, that's you, our new year. If you can. Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at myself now, I really should, um, but regardless, I think that wraps up our beautiful little podcast for our, you know, kicking off 2023. 
I'm glad to you who have made it to this point in the podcast. Thank you for listening so much. Thank you, you for surviving. Yes. Yeah, if you would like to see a different topic, please let me know. Uh, please drop me an email in the description if you want to be on the podcast. Do the same. And if you want to stay tuned, uh, you know, listen to the following episodes. We have a great lineup coming up, more individual podcasts, as well as hopefully some more of this lovely panel, who I thank very much for being here today, um, in the future. So please subscribe, like, share, comment, and all the good things. But until next time, then. All goodbye, the best. everybody. Ciao, ciao.